Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem today, with a message entitled, When Slander Wins the Day. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Anyone who has ever suffered stinging accusations in which they were prevented in some way from adequately defending themselves knows the power of slander. You know, some people are adept at slander. They invite people to meetings to discuss some of the concerns they've heard. And they make sure the so-called concerns are consistently repeated without anyone having the opportunity to hear a defense or without the person being slandered being immediately allowed to hear and to respond. Slander is a very effective tool to destroy. Fascinatingly enough, those who slander others well scarcely even know that they're doing it. In many cases, they've convinced themselves of their own slander. They say, you know, I'm simply telling of my concerns. Before the one being slandered ever knows what's going on, the slanderer has been active. In an essay on slander, author Addison told the story of a fabled creature called the Ecnuman which made it a business in his life to hunt down and break the eggs of crocodiles. It would never feed on the eggs, rather it would simply break them. There are people like that. They prey on the reputations of others simply because they like to break them. It said of Augustine of old that there was a note on his table where he worked. It said that whoever attacked the character of those absent from his table would be excluded from his table. How I wish others would have the character to know to do exactly that. I want you to think about the man who was slandered more than any other man, Jesus, the pure undefiled Son of God. Imagine him at his trial when Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest. Matthew 26, verse 60 says, Many false witnesses came forward. We have to assume a great number, one after the other. Yeah, there were contradictions in their stories. Indeed, they couldn't get their testimonies to agree, but the overall effect, that was significant, one after another. You know, many of us believe that when there's smoke, there's got to be fire. Indeed, the high priest demanded that Jesus answer the baseless claims. You know, we really see one important factor in making slander work. Bring many witnesses forward. It doesn't matter that they are all manner of inconsistencies. The mere repetition of accusations, at least so it is in many minds, the repetition is enough. Guilty, they say. We come in our study of the book of Acts to the account of the first Christian martyr, and it's a fascinating study into slander. It tells us a great deal about the human condition and about how it is that human beings who are innocent are unjustly put to death. Let's begin with Acts 6, verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll know that we've met Stephen yesterday. He was one of the seven servants chosen to make sure the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were not being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And I said then that these men are forerunners of the office of deacons, something our Bible describes in later letters. So here's what we know about Stephen. He was a Hellenist Jew, or shall we say, a Greek-speaking Jew. We also know that among the seven, Luke made special mention of him of being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Given his defense, which we read about in the next chapter, we expect that he was well-educated and that he had an expansive knowledge of the Old Testament. Luke also tells us that he was full of grace and power. 
To be full of grace means that there was evidence in his life of the goodness of God. And to say that he was full of power, well, it means he's highly effective in doing what God had called him to do. As we continue to read the account, we find a Stephen who's a very effective teacher and preacher. It would seem that his preaching ministry is directed primarily toward the Greek-speaking Jewish community. And given the reaction he got from his enemies, we'd be right to believe that he was highly effective. He must have won many to faith in Christ, and we've got to assume that he did it through his excellent treatment of the Old Testament. And we also know this. The Holy Spirit had given him power to do mighty miracles. This is the first time in Acts where we see someone outside of the apostles doing mighty works. You know, it seems to me that Stephen was doing these kinds of things before he was chosen to be a deacon. Already we can see that whereas the apostles were doing the primary preaching and teaching and they were laying down doctrines and they were the backstop, that is, they made sure that false teaching didn't find its way into the early church, but that activity did not mean that there wasn't room for others to preach and teach and to evangelize. And because Stephen was connecting to the Greek-speaking Jews, I've got to assume that other apostles were not. We see now there's a cooperation between the twelve and other highly effective people. And it's in the Greek-speaking community where the trouble begins. So Acts 6, 9 to 10. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So who are these people groups? Well, notice the first Luke mentions is a group called the synagogue of the freedmen. Remember that synagogues were places of teaching, a place where Jews would go to hear the scriptures being explained. And we have to assume that there were numerous different synagogues in Jerusalem. And this specific one consisted of freedmen. Now, the freedmen had a very unique history. Way back in 63 BC, they had been Jewish fighters and they had been captured by the Roman general Pompey. And after many years, they were freed and hence they got the name the freedmen. Well, initially, they built a colony for themselves along the Tiber River in Rome and they became a unique and distinct people group. And after a period of time, this community was expelled from Rome and many of their descendants found refuge in Jerusalem where they kept their culture alive. Now, it would seem that they must have built their own unique synagogue in Jerusalem. And when we read Luke's account, it would at least at first glance appear that the freedmen had their unique synagogue, as did four other people groups, that is the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and those from Asia. But some scholars have suggested that Luke means to tell us only of three different synagogues, that is, Cyrenians and Alexandrians came from North Africa, so they had a unique synagogue for themselves, and then the Cilicians and the Asians, well, they would have come from Asia Minor and had their own synagogue. But there must have been some interaction between these three people groups, and so they must have talked to one another, but they would have had different dialects, and so they would have been distinct from one another. So they had separate meetings because they were a unique cultural group. And perhaps different ways of saying things, different accents, different phrases. Now, they all spoke Greek. And it's for this reason that Stephen's ministry had made an impact on all of them. Well, the synagogue pushed back. And it would seem that on points of doctrine and on the proper understanding of the Old Testament, that is, what the text of Scripture actually said and what it meant and how to apply it, Stephen did better than hold his own. 
he bested his opponents. He, he was winning the debate. And people with great joy were entering into the kingdom of God. See, remember, Luke has already told us that Stephen is a man full of wisdom. I have to imagine also that he was a man able to think on his feet. He's able to understand objections to the gospel. He's able to answer objections in a winsome fashion. You know, in essence, what he was doing was what Peter would write about later when, you know, Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 would counsel Christians. He would say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So at any rate, Stephen was reaching many in the community of people he had been raised in. You know, it's often the case that someone who understands his own culture or her own culture, when filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom, is able to be very fruitful in winning his or her own people to Christ. That's what Stephen was doing. So it's quite clear Stephen's impact was so great that the synagogues had sent men to debate with Stephen. And Stephen took this as a God-given opportunity. He didn't think debate was to be shunned. It was rather to be welcome. And after all, if Christianity is a proclamation of truth, well, it must then be the case that we listen to objections, that we consider them carefully, and that we give a reasoned response. Many of us recognize this. Today, we often call this apologetics. It's an intellectual and reasoned defense of the faith. It requires thinking and a willingness to engage with others. See, I find this fascinating. You know, in our world, we often think about apologetics as the intellectuals and then those who do miracles as charismatics. But Stephen, you know, he does both miracles and he does apologetics. He's not one category or the other. But then Stephen is not attacked on the basis of reason, is he? Suddenly it comes not about what is the truth. Now it's all about slander. We're going to learn a lot about slander. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information, or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Many of the battles that men and women fight with each other have absolutely nothing to do with the truth. Oh, I know, so many pretend they're interested in truth. But the desire to have and maintain power over one another And the desire to be loved and accepted by others is far more important to most than the desire to know the truth. 
Men and women will gladly violate the truth so that they can have what they want, and in so doing, they will do anything. And so it is with the opponents of Stephen. How could they win the debate with him? Well, for just a short time before Jesus had been crucified before their eyes, the tomb was empty, there were hundreds who had seen him alive, the evidence for Jesus was strong. There was also the evidence of the miracles that were being done. How were they to answer Stephen's understanding of the Jewish Bible? I mean, after all, the First Testament is filled with elements that are fulfilled in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, these were wonderful days for Stephen. And he would seem to be unstoppable except for this. Satan is the father of lies. I think there's one thing that Stephen taught, that his enemies saw potential for slander. If you go forward to the next chapter where Stephen will make his defense, look to chapter 7, 48 to 49. There we're going to find Stephen arguing, and here I quote, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Now that statement, I assume, didn't come from Stephen's mouth for the first time in chapter 7. I assume he's been making that a part of his argument before. And of course, it's not Stephen who first made that argument. Remember, all the way back, recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus talked this way. John 2, 18 to 21, he says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so it's clear that Jesus did speak of the temple of his body. And as we're later going to find in the book of Hebrews, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross puts an end to the need of temple sacrifices. Now, I don't think that at this point in time when Stephen was speaking, that he was fully aware of the theology that would be fully explained later in the book of Hebrews. But Stephen is aware that it's not the temple that's the center of worship. It's rather Jesus that's the center of worship. And you might also remember that during the trial of Jesus, the matter of his statement of tearing down the temple was again brought up by slanderers. Matthew 26, 61 says that the religious teachers were able to find two false witnesses and they said, and I quote, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They said it to make Jesus sound like a terrorist who was plotting to destroy the temple. Now, These things were still remembered when Stephen was preaching the proper understanding of the temple. Now, if his enemies had taken the time, they might have recognized that what Stephen was saying was completely in line with, for instance, what Jeremiah had said and the other prophets as well. Stephen was being scriptural to a group of people who prided themselves in being scriptural. But as I've said, a great majority of men and women only feign an interest in the truth. Their real concern is power and how they appear to others. You have to imagine that the synagogue is concerned. Most people are following Stephen. And they're not following the synagogue teachers anymore. The synagogue is bleeding people out to the Christians. So we come to Acts 6, 11 to 14. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against 
this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. (laughs) There's the slander. Already there's a rumor that Jesus had tried to destroy the temple, but that he had been stopped and he was not able to fulfill his terrorist plot. Now then, say the slanders, this guy Stephen, he's a follower of Jesus. And in order to fulfill what his master had failed to fulfill, he's preaching against the temple. And furthermore, he not only hates the temple, he hates the law, that is, the law that was handed by Moses. And then they added, he never stops speaking this way. You know, they make it sound as if that's his dominant theme. Notice what Stephen's enemies are doing. They they don't want to debate about Jesus anymore. They want to move the agenda to another place. He never stops, they say, never stops speaking against the temple. The thing to know, if you're going to be an effective slanderer, is not to invent a complete fabrication. It's to build your story on a half-truth. It is true that Stephen did have something to say about the proper understanding of the temple. But it was not true to say that is what he was always talking about. The truth behind what Jesus actually said about the temple is fascinating. You might remember that Matthew records it best. On the week of his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples, you know, they were sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the valley beneath them, then the steep rise on the other side to the, to the hill on which the temple was located. And from there, Jesus and his disciples were seated, and the temple must have been a magnificent sight. And the disciples said as much. They noticed the massive stones so tightly put together. It was a masterpiece of building engineering. And on that occasion, Jesus had said that in days to come, not one stone would be left on another. The entire temple was going to be torn down. There's a great deal of difference, however, between a prophecy of what's going to occur in the future and what Jesus said he was intending to do. Less than 40 years after Jesus had made that prophecy, the Romans attacked Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. They pried the very stones of the temple apart. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. But at the time of Jesus and at the time of Stephen, none of those events had yet occurred. But it's one thing to say it's going to happen in the future. It's another thing to plot to try to destroy it. See, slander doesn't look for truth. It looks to take truth out of context, twist it, and then bring a charge. And this is what the leaders of the Greek synagogue did. In their zeal, they went so far as to seize Stephen and then bring him to the Sanhedrin, that same governing body that had put Jesus to death. And there they brought their charges. One false witness after another was brought forward. Boy, does that sound familiar by now. The sum total of it was this. It's not what this man says about Jesus that really bothers us. It's that this man is trying to subvert Judaism, trying to destroy our temple and destroy our religion. Clearly, this man has to be stopped. And you have to imagine that the chairs of the members of the Sanhedrin where Stephen was brought there in a semicircular fashion. Each row is elevated above the ones that were in front. And the men who sat in those chairs were the most powerful men in the country. And among them would have sat Saul of Tarsus. It's often said that when charges are brought in a court of law, the jury studies the face of the accused to see if there are indications of guilt or innocence. In that room that day, every single member of the Sanhedrin would have had an unobscured view of Stephen. 
Witness after witness came forward to make the case that this man was subverting the entire city and he had to be stopped before there's a revolution. Up to this point, Stephen would not have been permitted to give a response. That would come later. For now, it was the prosecution's turn. How would he respond? Chapter 6, verse 15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen looked enraptured. It seemed like a divine glow was in his face. When the righteous are slandered, Stephen teaches us something. Be aware that your ultimate judge is not the opinions of men. Be aware that you stand in the presence of God. Like Moses before him who came down the mountain, the glory of God was shining from his face. Stephen was standing where Jesus had once stood, and Stephen was honored to follow his master. You know, slander never destroys the righteous. Stephen's life teaches us that. The slanderers, well, they may win for a moment, and they may indeed rub their hands in glee. As a result of the slander, they would get their way, yes, they would kill Stephen. They would get what they wanted. Furthermore, a great persecution would drive many Christians out of Jerusalem. It now becomes clear that all those within the hierarchy of Judaism believe that the Christians are intent on trying to destroy the entire city. That was the slander. But at the same time, God is in the midst of this. Everyone who left Jerusalem went out preaching the gospel wherever they went. In short, in order to stop the gospel, they had only made the gospel more powerful. Stephen, the first martyr who died because of slander, was responsible for sending the church on a world missional program. The ways of God are strange indeed. Thanks for your message today, John. Let me ask you this. How can I distinguish the difference between being slandered and being made genuinely accountable for my actions? Yeah, I suppose there are a number of ways to do that. And and the first is love. Um, You know, when uh, people hold us accountable for our actions, uh, we would pray that the person that would do that uh, is loving. Um, And that is, they care for our well-being. They they want what's best for us. Um, The other thing that we can do is... um, Uh, When we hear a criticism, we would do well if uh, we have people that we can trust and who will tell us the truth uh, to go with them about the criticism and say, look, this is what I've heard about myself. How are you perceiving me? However, we we also should know that um, a slander is meant to be destructive. And uh, when slander happens simply to wound and to destroy, uh, when that's happening to us, we need to seek solace in the Lord and to remember that Jesus also was slandered. So um, slander also is accompanied by gossip also, so we can take note of that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you. It's our Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience some of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many other biblical figures walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's Royal Palace. Worship at the Garden Tomb and go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. 
Enjoy daily Bible teaching from Dr. Newfeld and be encouraged as we share time with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and special musical guests. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity to visit the Holy Land. You'll be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.